On this week's episode, we talk to Neil Markowski of the band Korean Jeans. This is The Operative. I'm your host, Chris Williams. So uh, thank you so much for doing this. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm re- really happy to be here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you live, what you do. Cool. Yeah. So I am Neil Markowski. I am from the Chicago area. I live in Chicago currently. Um, I play in a bunch of bands. I know Chris because I play in a bunch of bands. Um, Some of those bands would include bands like Korean Jeans, Mars Hill, Hungry Man, Future Living, sometimes Lars from Metallica, sometimes Blank Banker. I feel like I'm forgetting some. Oh, Daddy's Boy, playing that band too. Um, and I've got some new stuff, a, a new band, a quarantine band that's happening right now as well. And and uh, applicable for today's conversation, a uh, U2 cover band. So that that that's nine. I'm sure I'll think of some other one. <laughs> uh, so are you originally from Chicago or? Yeah, I originally grew up uh, not too far from like Midway Airport on the south side. Um, and then we moved to like past the suburbs, like south to a town called Plainfield and then to another town called Shanahan. But while we were living down there, I would commute up to the city every day on the metro to Chicago uh, for high school. So. I always knew I was going to wind up here. I lived in Boston for a couple of years when I did my undergrad and immediately like within the first three months of living there, I was like, I'm going to be back in Chicago. And that's what happened. So. So you wanted to uh, talk about you two. Where did you first come across you two? I honestly don't remember just because it was like one of the first things I would have heard in my life. Right. Like, to go way back, you have to think about my folks. My folks were very big music people. They were avid listeners. They went to concerts all the time. Um, my mom is still kind of mad at my dad for right after they started dating. He had tickets to see the Scorpions and they hadn't been dating when he bought the tickets and the show was sold out. So like he didn't bring her along and my mom still gets kind of like not super stoked on that um but like you know if you were to think of my folks right like they dad was a huge rush fan mom's a huge u2 fan and they kind of meet in the middle with like sammy hagar but also like rem and stuff like that um and so that was just what i heard growing up um there are videos of me like being a little dude like watching live YouTube concert VHS tapes like that my mom shot of me just like bouncing around like listening to the songs and um you know kind of freaking out so it's just it's always been a part of my life yeah so I guess I I probably I don't think my parents did the like put your headphones on your stomach with your kid inside there and like I don't think they ever did that but it was like probably not long after like i i came into the world how or how old are you how, when were you born i was born in 91 so for context in like the u2 chronology there um 
I was born in July of 91, and then Octoon Baby came out, I believe, in November of that year. Okay. Um, the Rush album that came out that year was Roll the Bones, which has the rapping skeleton, uh, which I'm, I'm totally back at. Um, but so, like, I, it also makes sense that that's why those are some of my first memories, because then, like, in 93, when that, like, live Zoo TV, like, live in Sydney tape came out, I just memorized that it was like that video that I would just like watch and get in my head and be like oh yeah when you're on stage you should totally wear sunglasses like all the time that's what cool people do like that's the normal thing um which I'm not wrong because Lou Reed did it so have you always been and I know with your parents being so into music were as you were coming up were you always interested in playing music oh yeah yeah i mean my dad was a drummer in high school um and so pretty early on they were like yeah let's just see if he sticks with this um and i was just telling the story to someone else the other day but um my grandmother my mom's mom passed away right before i turned eight and that was like a pretty heavy thing because she was like a big like figurehead for our family and stuff like that um and the story goes that it a couple weeks before it happened, she, she had this like heavy conversation with my mom. And part of the conversation was you need to get Neil a drum set. He's not going to be good at sports. Stop trying to make him do it. Uh, because I was, that was not my jam. And so like, even by like had like a little drum set and stuff like that. And, you know, by the time I was, yeah, when I turned eight for my birthday that year, there was like an actual, like, Tama Rockstar drum set, like full size deal. Like, and when my dad brought him home, my mom was like, Are those for him or for you? And he's like, Well, you know, we'll we'll see if he sticks with it. Um, so yeah, that that was always just totally the thing. Like, it was the only thing I really ever had any interest in. It was like either playing music or like memorizing every single fact that I could about any band that I could get my hands on like I would just sit like looking at liner notes of CDs or tapes or records or whatever just like trying to memorize everything um so yeah I was I was doomed so did when you started playing were you trying to emulate stuff that you heard through the U2 albums or you know uh (laughs) With my initial playing, not so much. I mean, like, so I started, like I said, I started, like, with an actual drum set at eight. And I tried to put together a band when I was 10. There was a neighbor kid that lived behind, that that lived right behind us, and he was a year older. Um, And by the age of 10, I had already, because I had some friends that had, like, older siblings, um, kind of already gotten familiar with punk. Like, because you know i obviously like i was listening to green day when that was a thing in the 90s because my mom listened to it it was on the radio here in chicago so like i had dookie like when i was four years old or whatever and like you know stuff like that um but i remember like very clearly the first time i went to a guitar center specifically to buy a tambourine for the drum set it was so i could figure out how to do the the kind of like syncopated beat thing with the tambourine hits on pride in the name of love. Um, 
like that was 100% like why I was like, oh, I need a tambourine on the drum set. And so like in some ways, like there was like weird, like flourishy things like that. And like also like if you're in a, a young aspiring drummer and you hear the beginning of like Sunday Bloody Sunday with like this like, you know, super like intense like snare drum thing, like as you're also learning like how to play snare drum and do rudiments and stuff like that you're like oh I can work this sort of thing into a song and so like my first band which I will not say the name of um, when we did our first recording when I was 12 there was totally a song that kind of had like you know a military style like snare drum pattern thing in there that like at the time I wasn't thinking about like it being related to YouTube but like it's totally that's totally like a Larry Mullen thing I was like copying 100 percent so did did the did the band mean something to you more in that respect it like as you were coming about as a musician or was it something that just meant more to you uh just because of the music that they played and what that music meant to you um i would say yeah it depends because like um you know, it for for a long time. I mean, I didn't really think ab about it musically in terms of like the music I was making. Like I said, like the the snare drum thing that was just like a total subliminal thing. Like I wasn't like, oh, I'm gonna cop this. It was like, oh yeah, this is interesting. And then I look back and I'm like, oh yeah, that's what I was doing. Um, you know, I I also don't know if you know this or not, Chris, but it's kind of uncool to be super into you too when you're hanging out with like the other punk kids <laughs> and so i think like there was a there was a time where i did try to like play it down a little bit but it was like it was the music that i i heard at home right mm -hmm. like we would that's just like what would be on it's still what's on like if I go to visit my folks and I get in the car with my mom, she has what is probably will always be like the most recent U2 CD just like cranked up to the point where we have to yell over the music. And most of the time she's just saying, isn't this so good? Isn't the song so good? And like, I, I and so I, I think for me, it was like that sort of like familial relationship and that like, you know, this is just part of my background. It's who I am. Um, I think, I started paying a lot more attention to like the music stuff though when I started like kind of teaching myself guitar and and with like the guitar like the guitar projects I've done like the like I did this like sort of Glenn Glenn Branca e like electric guitar quartet thing like maybe six or seven years ago that I recorded um, and I started getting way more into what the Edge was doing just from like a pure like textural level. Um, and thinking about like how much economy there is like in his notes like if you listen to his parts and like what he's playing he's not all that dissimilar from like what you might hear from d boone he just puts a bunch of shit on it like if you boil it down it's like you know higher notes stuff that rings out it's like it cuts it's like really trebly at times um but then he just puts all of these effects on it and it doesn't sound like anyone else. Right. Um, and so like, I kind of made that realization of like, Oh, well I love D Boone and it makes sense because it's kind of going back to like, sort of like what I've heard from this edge thing, like, and that's somewhat influenced the way I, I approach like a stringed instrument. So. 
did that answer the question yeah no that, okay that's really interesting because i i i never would have made the the connection between someone like d boone and the edge did i assume that you didn't try to uh sell the punk kids on uh youtube by using that analogy <laughs> no no because what like you know at that point the punk kids were like really into rancid <laughs> And so, like, the Minutemen weren't even on my radar at that point. Um, but, you know, even, like, hearing about the Ramones, like, I heard about the Ramones because, like, I would just read everything I could about U2. And one of the stories that I read about them first getting started was, like, they auditioned for, like, a, like a you know, local TV show in Dublin or something. And, like, they got on... They, they got picked for the show because they played like, you know, one or two of their own songs and then did like two or three Ramones covers and said they were their own songs. And the host didn't know. And so like when I read that, I was like, oh, well, I need to hear who this like Ramones band is. Like if if you two was really into them, like there must be something in it for me. And then like, you know, you hear that first Ramones record, you know, which I, I heard that when I was probably like, yeah, when I was like 10. And it like, you know, ripped my head off. And I also remember thinking when I was 10, like, how come I didn't know about this earlier? <laughs> like, cause that was just like my, my nature is a little dude. Like when I heard stuff, I just like, I think I'm still kind of like that when I hear a record that I haven't heard yet. It's just like, my life would have been better for the last however many years if I knew like, you know, this thing existed, but you know, whatever. It's just, it's always going to be like that for me. You you sound like I, I mean like i think that my my son is a pretty cool kid but you you sound like you were a pretty uh, a pretty cool kid <laughs> i i don't i think in parts i was i think my my folks gave me a lot of leeway to just kind of do whatever i wanted because they knew i wouldn't get into trouble and they knew that all i wanted to do was like hear music and go to shows and i had really supportive folks like i i went to my first like punk show at an American Legion Hall when I was like 10 years old, like two months before I turned 11, right? And it was because the, one of the folks in one of the bands was like the son of one of my mom's co-workers. They were teachers together. And so like, you know, when these kids, you know, I say kids, they were like 16, 17, whatever. And I was, you know, 10 years old. Like my my mom was just like there with me like I was like right up in the front she stood off to the side like I didn't get into the pit but I was just like having like that sort of thing happened and my folks just did a lot to sort of push that along they're like well you know he's not going to play sports <laughs> he needs to he needs to do something and I and I've always just had I think a lot of energy and so the music was always like a good outlet for that too well it's so as far as shows go um You've seen you two. Yeah, yeah, a handful of times. Uh, the first time I saw him was the year two. When was that? It would have been, I think it was spring of 2001. It was at the United Center. It was uh, the Elevation Tour, which is after All That You Can't Leave Behind came out. And PJ Harvey opened that show. Oh. Yeah, that was, it was right around when uh, Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea came out. Mm -hmm. Um, and I couldn't tell you what song she played or anything like that because that was, it was so long ago. But I just remember thinking, like, oh yeah, she seems like a badass. Um, 
you know, and of course, yeah, of course it did. It's PJ Harvey. But yeah, so I saw him then. Um, God, and that was such a trip too, because like it was on a school night and my folks were like, yeah, we're going to go up to, to Chicago to see this concert. And that wasn't the first show I had seen, but like, you know, the fact that like I then had to come back from the show that night and then go to school the next morning, like, and you know, all the, all the other nine-year-olds did not, were not at the United Center the night before in, in my classroom. Uh, but yeah, so I saw him then and that was a trip. Um, when else? Yeah, I've seen him. There's a Joshua Tree tour. I saw him two times on the last tour that came through. Um, I feel like there might be one other time in there that I'm, yeah, yeah. And then uh, another time on the 360 tour. So I guess it's like, yeah, like five times. Like the last time my mom and I went to see you too, we had tickets and they were right behind the stage. And there was like, you know, maybe 20 feet between us and like Larry Mullen Jr. And you're like, you know, I'm for that sort of thing for people that are just like, yeah, I don't need the whole spectacle. The spectacle is great. I love it. I'm not upset by it. But like, if I just want to see dudes like playing music, that's, that's pretty cool. Right. So, um, so, and, and like, you know, because of that, I've been able to have the experience of like the full immersive audio visual whatnot, but then like, then, then the next time I'll go again and be like, oh yeah, like, that's just like a band that's playing. And I think like being able to have that sort of duality with that band has been like really satisfying over the last couple of years because it's like, yeah, man, they make mistakes. Like, and you can see once when you're back there, you can see when certain stuff that's like part of the show isn't going well. Like the, um, the last show we saw, there was supposed to be this big, they've got this song on this new record that sucks. It's called American soul. And like, there's supposed to be this part with this big, like American flag comes out like behind them and the things like, you know, it's 50 feet tall and 150 feet wide or whatever. And we're like standing back there and we see them like the, the, the crew guys trying to get this flag out of this bin that just keeps tangling over on itself. And so like, they're trying to pull the thing up and we can see that like the thing's just more tangled and like, miraculously like the thing just comes up and no one out front could see it but we could see like these five dudes were just like scrambling and then there's two dudes standing there with leaf blowers to make it look like the flag's kind of waving in the wind <laughs> and you're just like man that is like you know it's a huge production but like there's always a chance like they could totally screw something up and like man they're just using like $40 leaf blowers from the Home Depot to like make the shit work you know so that's that's always been you know satisfying to see but yeah they're great they're great live highly recommend it as far as the uh discography goes um is there you you noted that the uh they over time they they haven't continued to age as well uh what do you think are some of the, the high points i mean i really don't think you can go wrong like with anything I'm going to be generous. I'm going to say, I think everything up until 2004 has value. Um, and I should say the new records are putting out. It's not like they are awful. There's one of them. That's not very good, but like, you can tell that they're like, 
kind of trying to push themselves like and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't i think that band really needs an editor like instead of people are just gonna be like oh yeah please just keep making music that sounds like this but um you know i think Atum Baby and Zuropa are always like the two where I'm like, yeah, those are the go-tos. I think that's just because those are those are the ones that hit me so much when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, but also like, I you know, Boy stands out as being I think just like one of the great debut albums of all time. Like, I would be hard pressed for you to f- show me a better like track one side one first album cut then i will follow like maybe blitzkrieg bop like i think you know there, there's few that just like totally hit the nail on the head of like this is what this band is this is what they're about this is what they're gonna do and like you're gonna like kind of be ride or die for the next 30 years uh or 40 years at this point um so yeah, I think like those are all like definite high points. Um but I also have this like weird thing with it because like at a certain point I stopped getting an allowance from my folks and I would instead just get like a CD every week or every two weeks or whatever. Um because you could get CDs from the Target or the Best Buy for 7.99 or 9.99 or whatever. Um and so, like, I kind of filled in all the gaps in my U2 discography that way. So I got, like, really into the October record, which is the second one that, like, is a bunch of, like, not really finished songs <laughs> that, like, the like half of the band is having a weird, like, spiritual identity crisis, and they almost break up while making it. Like, not a lot of people really like that one. I love that one. I think there's a lot of really good stuff on there. Like, you know, I could I could spiel for hours about any single one record in their discography which is like its own podcast that does not have the parks and rec guy in it like i'm not like those guys i'm not like those nerds <laughs> well it's so it's as far as uh, the tracks go um are there any tracks that mean something special to you or is it just stuff like i will follow that you think are particularly just really solid songs Oh, I yeah, I mean, there's definitely, like, emotional resonance with a lot of that material. Um, you know, I think, you know, Out of Control, lyrically, is, like, one of those songs that when, when you're a young man or a young person, um, I say man just from my own experience, but, like, you know, it, it's a song about that's, like, kind of, like, leaving adolescence and, and becoming an adult and feeling, like, free and you've got the whole world ahead of you and there's like a certain point in your life where like you need something like that and that certainly had some like real heavy emotional resonance with me you know even like uh you know where the streets have no name is one of those ones that like i always think about like the live versions of it um because i always do this like it's a real cheap trick with the lighting where everything will be red and then as soon as like the happens all the lights turn white and all the house lights come on and everyone just screams and it's like this like you get goosebumps and everyone's like crying like those sort of like emotional moments where you're like i'm being manipulated but i'm okay with it um so there's stuff like that um even like matt there's there's a song on a one of their uh, 
I say more recent, but How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb came out in 2004, and there's a song in there called City of Blinding Lights that I think is just, like, kind of, like, one of the best, like, I don't know, one of the, like, one of the best love songs of the last 20 years that just, like, expresses, like, all these things that you feel as, like, you, you're in a relationship with somebody and that develops and, and your own sort of, like, growth and as a person and things like that that like you know i hear that and i still like man when i saw him play that live last year i i totally got choked up and it's like you know of course like so it's yeah there i mean i could i could keep on going but like yeah those those are the ones that like jump out at me right now i think at a certain point i realized that i need to stop trying to convince people of this band um because it's like rush right like people like rush or they don't and like it's it's not on me to convince anyone of that sort of thing but like the one thing that i always do just like to call attention to when i have these conversations are like how they sort of like cemented themselves in my life as a as someone that like as a group that opened the door to other musicians right so like i mentioned the ramones thing earlier right um but a Another big part of like getting super into U2 was that like when I was like 14, 15, 16 years old and my, my tastes were starting to change and evolve a little bit. And I was trying to, you know, just learn more of my own music and not just like what was passed down to me. A name that kept coming up a lot was Brian Eno. And I heard that name and I recognized it. And it was because I remember like looking at all those U2 liner notes and seeing like produced by Brian Eno produced by Daniel Lanois and like hearing you know when the first time I heard like another green world and some of the synth stuff that was going on that he was doing on that record I was like oh yeah this is Zuropa this is like he totally just did this like you know 15 years later or whatever it was when making that record like that sonic imprint is him and it took me a long time to figure that out but then like you know, there, there's like all of these gaps. And so I think like, I, that's one thing that I always just have to be like, you know, I, I can't, if the music is not to your taste, that's fine. But you at least have to acknowledge that like, they knew who to work with and they knew like how to let those people shine through and stuff. Like, you know, it's no different than them realizing like, oh yeah, we should totally work with Steve Lillywhite, who before then was like already recording records with, like, XTC and Susie and the Banshees and that sort of thing like they're they were always just like that that conduit and and opened so many doors up in that way at least for me personally that I just can't really like deny that yeah they're great I also feel weird that I I don't think I've actually mentioned Adam Clayton at all but like I was having a conversation or just like a thread on Facebook and Eric Fundingsland from the Bismarck was like yeah I always think of him as being the guy that like really carries the song like in terms of like what's happening harmonically or melodically and it's just like oh yeah that's totally the thing because the edge has all of his sonics going that like i think from a bass player perspective like the more i listen to him the more i'm like how the hell does he come up with that stuff and like how does it just always remain so rock solid yet have such a groove like i think that's super unique and i would recommend all the aspiring bass players listening to this podcast uh to, to you know listen to some YouTube baselines and get hip with it. So I know you've got, what would you say, a, a 
11 active projects something like that yeah uh is there uh any way that uh people can find out about some of these <laughs> through the internet absolutely you can go to koreanjeans.bandcamp.com you can go to hungrymanband.bandcamp.com you can go to daddy'sboy.bandcamp.com yeah i'm i'm all over it's fine uh it's as many things as i'm in i generally I, yeah i don't keep up with the social media stuff we finally created a korean jeans instagram account I, yeah, I don't know i don't know what's happening on there um oh no i did post when we we put out a live recording that we did uh in kalamazoo and in chicago um for like the band camp thing a couple of weeks ago but yeah where it's yeah just look it up look up the bands we're there we're not going anywhere None of the bands are going anywhere. We're all stuck inside. It sucks. Well, uh, yeah. Thank you for doing this, Neil. I really appreciate it. The Operative is produced in conjunction with Radio Nope. For more information, visit radionope.com. And find all of our past episodes at theoperative.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening.